0: Already with a pre-existing knowledge that gets it to well beyond human level. It should be like way better than the than any human on earth at understanding emotional affordances just from the start, because it's already learned from way more data than any human on earth has seen that informs our understanding of emotional affordances in everyday interactions. The ideal is that it is better at predicting how an action affects human well-being than the degree to which it, it will result in your bank account having a higher number, right? Like things like that. Because predicting well-being is a matter of predicting people's emotional expressions, their reactions, their states over long time scales, and that data exists. I think there's a there's a path forward. I'm very much worried about it, but I'm also optimistic that we can solve the problem.
1: Hello and welcome to the cognitive revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week we'll explore their revolutionary ideas and together we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Tornberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is Alan Cowan, CEO and Chief Scientist at Hume AI, a research lab and technology company that describes itself as teaching AI to make people happy and thus paving the way for pro-social AI. Now, if you've read your science fiction or even just studied the many challenges associated with the use of RLHF training to shape AI behavior, you'll immediately recognize that the interplay between human emotions and increasingly capable AI systems raises all sorts of profound questions. How do we know that we're accurately measuring human emotion, particularly across diverse populations and cultural contexts? Exactly what emotional response should we be optimizing for? How do we understand the relationship and trade-offs between short-term happiness and long-term well-being? And how do we maintain high-level control as AI systems begin to access not just our verbal and facial responses, but our brain states directly, potentially coming to understand us better in some ways than we understand ourselves? Such scenarios are no longer all that far-fetched. But in keeping with my general philosophy of trying to figure out what is before attempting to determine what we can do about it, I spent most of my time with Alan digging into the details of how he and the Hume team have built their platform, exploring the challenges inherent in collecting emotional response data and their approaches to overcoming them, delving into the nature of emotional measurement models that they've built for text, image, audio, and video, and understanding how they productize all this technology for customers today before finally zooming out to consider the big picture at the end. It's no exaggeration in my mind to say that the development of emotionally aware AI is one of the highest stakes parts of the broader cognitive revolution. And I came away from this conversation very impressed, not only with the technology that Hume has built, but also by the depth and quality of thought that Alan and team have put into their approach. You can see the technology in action by watching the video version of this episode on top of which we'll be layering real-time output from Hume's Emotion Recognition API. And you can also dig deeper into their philosophy at thehumeinitiative.org. The work there, of course, is nowhere near finished, but already they have established a 10-member ethics committee, developed six guiding principles for empathic AI, published best practices for measuring well-being across low, medium, and high-risk use cases, and articulated a list of both supported and unsupported use cases. As always, if you're finding value in the show, we ask that you take a moment to share it with friends. And of course, we always appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, here is a deeply thought-provoking conversation with Alan Cowan of emotional intelligence startup Hume AI. Alan Cowan of Hume AI, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to have you. I think you are at one of the most interesting intersections of ai and humanity of any that i've come across and um, you know it starts really for me just with the headline on the website teaching ai to make people happy you guys are building at Humei the ai toolkit to understand emotional expression and align technology to human well-being i kind of want to unpack this you know at, at every level from the data sets that you have built to the models, to the products, to how people are using this. But maybe just to start off with like a a really big question, which is so fundamental, how do you define happiness? And how do you think about that in relation to longer term well-being?
0: Yeah, I mean, so first teaching AI to make people happy is really about well-being. Happiness is sort of the in the moment experience of positive emotions and well-being is defined in a few ways it's like that plus how you kind of reflect on your experiences of being happy and that's called satisfaction with life but you know whatever you're measuring it's happiness satisfaction positive emotions you measure it the best you can and then you optimize for it and so that's what our platform is trying to do we give researchers and developers uh, the tools to measure and optimize for human well-being you have to measure it in a very multifaceted way people value the richness of emotional experience it's not a one-dimensional thing it's not about just cute cat videos or funny things or just awe all the time it's just this mix of things love is important you know positive surprise excitement is important and the idea that you can measure emotion that's something i've spent a lot of years studying have about 40 papers on that, introduced a new theory about measuring emotion called semantic space theory. But the key theme is that emotion is just an essential component of all human interaction. And yeah, whether that's a human or an AI, every word we say has like a tone to it with many, many dimensions that you can read and people are using that to measure user experience and mental health and customer support outcomes and all of that. All of this ties into the broader picture of improving human well-being
1: it's a grand challenge you know for um for really you know all of uh human history not just this ai era but it, it certainly takes on another dimension now one thing i would encourage people to do is check out the video version of this particular episode because we are going to try to take the video and overlay a hume emotional recognition layer to the conversation that we're having and this is technology that really works And if you can't if you you know if you're going to listen to the audio version and still want to go get a sense for for the efficacy of the technology independent of this episode you can also go to the, the website did you give me a special access or can anybody go and create an account and actually just try it live in the browser
0: yeah anybody can create an account And what you'll see is our measures, and it's really difficult to actually put into words what expressions mean, so we do our best. Like The word that you see is really a representation of what somebody seeing that expression in isolation would evaluate that as meaning, but it doesn't necessarily mean that in the given context that you're in, that's the best word for your expression. It's really just meant to be an objective measure. And then we have a custom model API to actually interpret what that means. you'll see all of the nuances of the many dimensions of facial and vocal expression we're able to measure when you try our API, but really when you want to put that into practice, you, you want to connect that to something, you want to connect it to user experience, mental health, some measure that you have, and that's where you really get value out of it. You're, you're able to predict basically a lot more than you would with just language. That's the real value.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, even just the base demo in the website works quite well that, you know, in a world where things are being announced and things are being previewed and things are being, you know, hyped and waitlisted, I was definitely struck by the fact that this is technology that you can go, you know, get your hands on and actually just look at yourself, you know, essentially in the mirror and and see what the AI is understanding as it reads the expression on your face. And that is a pretty striking experience. At least it was for me. So Let's kind of build this up from, you know, maybe the the ground up. Like, obviously this is a multimodal system and you have built a, a kind of a range of products that take in different modalities. So maybe we could just kind of run down like the different modalities that you work with and, you know, give us a sense for like how much of a difference that makes in terms of the ability for systems to understand what's going on.
0: So we're able to measure speech prosody, so the tune, rhythm, and timbre of speech. is This This is something that every single word that you utter has some speech prosody to it. So you can think of the word token, the phonetics, the linguistic content, what you transcribe as carrying a lot of dimensions of information that, that make their way into language models, but then that ignores all of this other information, which is in the prosody, so how you've spoken that word. And there's dozens of dimensions of prosody that we're able to capture and if you supplement the language with the prosody you can predict a lot of things more accurately specifically things like outcomes of, of human interaction or things about human preferences and, and human well-being and mental health so we can predict in a given video somebody reflecting on their past whether in the moment they're experiencing depression like that's something we can predict way better by adding in that non-linguistic information so We've got speech prosody, we've got vocal bursts, which are like laughs and sighs and screams and mms and ahas. We've got facial expression, uh, which is all of these different action units on your face, so all these different muscles that you're moving. And then holistically, are people evaluating this as an expression of anger, contempt, disgust, uh, sadness? Those are all negative versus awe, happiness, love, romance, uh, adoration, these are all kind of dis- related, but but really nuanced dimensions of expression that people can actually distinguish when you ask them. And th- this is not just true like within one culture, but across many cultures, people distinguish um, over 28 different dimensions of facial expression. So we're capturing all of that too. And each of those dimensions is a continuous dimension that varies over time. And that's true for prosody and vocal bursts. And if you add up all that data, you're getting hundreds of dimensions per second that we're able to measure as somebody's speaking or just reacting to something or driving, whatever they're doing, and make predictions based on that data.
1: I was struck in just kind of looking at some of the materials around, you know, how much of a difference it makes, you know, for one thing you mentioned driving, adding in the ability to look at the face and to hear the voice beyond just the language. If I'm understanding your materials right, It makes the difference between essentially being unable to tell whether the driver is drowsy and being like you know 90 plus percent accurate in being able to tell if the driver is drowsy do i have that right like basically in that case it's all about the non-language aspects of the of the inputs
0: well for for drowsiness if you're you're talking you're usually not drowsy you could be really distracted which is a whole different issue and we can measure that too Uh, so drowsiness is really happening when you're not talking anyway and so the language model is not going to get you anywhere there. Um, we are able to capture these really nuanced uh, facial expressions that occur even when like, your eyes are open, that indicate that you're drowsy, that you're you're not able to, to function at the same reaction speed, basically. And that's obviously important if you're driving a car.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. And that's, I think a, this is a really interesting hopefully my kids will never have to learn to drive a car if we can get our act together but um, i thought that was just a really interesting example of just how kind of far ranging this sort of technology might be in its application obviously again it, it makes sense on a conceptual level language is you know some in a sense kind of a dehydrated if you're purely in text form i think of it as like a dehydrated version of you know what actually happened adding on to it images audio video uh, makes a ton of sense that it's going to unlock a lot more interpretation of what is going on. Uh, let's work our way up. Let's start with the data sets. We'll go to the base models and then we'll go to the custom models. So the data sets, from what I understand, are largely self-reported emotions. So tell me how that's how that works. Like how are you actually getting the ground truth? I'm sure there are a lot of challenges there, right? Around like what What is ground truth in terms of like what somebody was really feeling, you know, self-reporting makes a lot of sense, but I can even imagine that that would be fraught. So tell us about how you've assembled these data sets.
0: Yeah. So we have this big survey platform that we've put together where we recruit at this point, hundreds of thousands of people to do a lot of different things. They're talking to other participants. They're talking to AI. They're reacting to things. They're acting things out And they're reporting on their own expressions. So that's one uh, supervised data point. They're reporting on their experiences. They're reporting on the expressions of the person they're talking to and what they infer to be that person's experiences. And we're controlling, kind of randomizing the tasks that they're undergoing, who they're talking to, what they're talking about, what they're reacting to relative to the identity of the person. And that's really important because if you just train a model on tons of video data, it will start to understand facial expression, but it'll be really conflated with like the identity and context that the person's in. And that is very pernicious often. Like women are more often in certain contexts than men, more often expressing certain things than men perceived differently than men. And that's true across ethnicities and ages. And you don't want those biases feeding into like your recommendation algorithm, for example. You know, you, you don't want it to like, see women forming more submissive expressions as like more positive than than what men form submissive expressions or like dominant. Like you don't want that to like be a bias that just gets kind of echoed and enhanced by your algorithm. Like you want the
1: opposite of that. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Um, Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms, with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it and I recommend you use it too. Use CogRev to get a 10% discount. So, you use so it's really important to, get a to disentangle
0: discount. the identity and expression dimensions. And that's one of the things our surveys is designed, are designed to do because they're scientifically controlled. We recruit these participants. They don't choose what tasks they're going to undergo. like It's all randomized. Right? And so then we can train our model on all of these different task features. And it's this like massive multitask thing where we have like experience labels, we have perception labels, we have like the task that they're undergoing. And out of that, you can extract these, first of all, these like dimensions of facial expression and the voice and, um, and speech that are very objective. So you, if you use the right training procedure, you can get something that's gonna give you the same output whether if it's the same facial expression, whether it's somebody um, who's old or young or male or female or non-binary or one ethnicity this another, et cetera. And, and that is independent of the meaning of that facial expression. You just like First you wanna just measure that facial expression. And then when it comes to meaning, there's all of these things that you can try to predict. It could be self-reported emotion. Right, uh, but it could also be uh, something really practical, like did this person have a good experience with uh, like this product? Are these two people getting along? Things like that, and those are really deeply embedded in our expressions and language and the interaction between expression and language, and we're able to decode that by t- first taking those objective measures and then connecting that to the subjective labels in a culture-dependent way too, like in, for each demographic and culture that we study.
1: Yeah, there's so many layers to this. So I guess it, when I imagine the simplest version, it would be maybe just an image, right? Because that's just like a static asset. And then I could look at it and I could say, you know, is this person smiling? Are they frowning? You know? And then so it's it's interesting, even just thinking about the vocabulary that we have for facial expressions. We have like a few kind of concrete words for expressions like smile, frown, you know, grimace, whatever. But then very quickly, it seems like that vocabulary runs out and we end up with, you know, we kind of move over to a vocabulary that is more about the state that we are inferring based on the facial expression. So do you have something that kind of sits between those that is like, you know, that I, I'm not that super familiar with like the micro expression literature or exactly what vocabulary they use. But do you have a sort of more objective vocabulary for all sorts of different facial expressions that sits between the, you know, the actual like shape of the face and the sort of emotional label that, you know, people just so instinctively jump to? So this has been a
0: challenge in emotion science for a while. Like my advisor's advisor, Paul Ekman, was one of the pioneers in this and he invented this facial action coding system that purported to enable people to label like facial muscle movements. And you have to go undergo training to do this. Like there's two weeks of training like eight hours a day in order to be able to do this. It turns out that even that system is more biased by like people, what direction people are looking and like age than people's perceptions of emotion. So it's that perceptions of emotion are this really deeply ingrained thing in the, in the human brain, that you know, enable us to make inferences because that's really what's important. We're like not concerned as a species about the structure of what muscles people are moving. We're interested in like social inferences, like what is this person's preference? What is their intention? And that's sort of embodied in these emotion labels. And people are really, really good at picking up on tiny, tiny nuances that influence it, their like perceptions of emotion. So the facial action coding system doesn't really capture this. Things like grin and smile, like they don't really capture that. You really need to collect tons of judgments. And what we do is we just like, we first collect a ton of judgments and just assume that structure of the facial exp- muscle movements influences those judgments. And then we try to figure out like what it is that is actually influencing those judgments and not just in like a collapsed a cr- average way across the population, the whole distribution of the population and how they evaluate a facial expression or how they evaluate a voice or speech. Like we're taking all of those data points as these nuanced ways of conceptualizing expression and they have some reliability to them. We do this thing called preserved components analysis to figure out across different populations what is in common and what's different in people's judgments of expressions. And we, can train on that data, which is each each individual judgment is biased by things like ethnicity and age, but we can actually remove those biases by use, utilizing our randomized task structure. And so we get the best of both worlds. And then when you look at the embeddings of those models that we train, those are the things that capture a ton of outcomes really accurately, whether somebody's a driver is drowsy, whether somebody is feeling depressed, uh, whether they're gonna be screened for as having Parkinson's, uh, whether they're you know, having a good product experience and a user experience study. We can predict all these things a lot better from those like underlying embeddings, which are actually really difficult to name and conceptualize. So I mean, there's definitely a lot of scientific work we, we could be doing about just like looking at these individual dimensions of this embedding space and trying to figure out like what are the actual muscle movements that give rise to those dimensions. It's not easy at all. First of all, because we can't even really measure muscle movements that accurately. like. The best way we have is for like a living person when they form muscle movements is to measure like the electrical signal but that's not like very localized so you put electrodes on somebody's face and you try to measure the electrical signal but we have over 40 facial muscles and you can't really narrow it down to like which muscle is moving so it's actually a much harder scientific problem to actually link those perceptions of facial expression and the underlying dimensions that are uh, they are agnostic to the demographics with the underlying muscle movements.
1: So if I understand that correctly, to try to summarize, it's kind of a losing battle to try to find that middle, theoretically more objective state, but that kind of turns out to be a mirage and you're better off jumping from raw inputs to more emotional labels versus trying to have a middle step on you know, whatever the, you know, 30 second muscle in the face is contracting and, you know, that that ends up being, you know, more harm than good. A couple of just questions on the data. So you're recruiting people from all over, you know, is this something that I can go do? Can I, can I um, participate? Can listeners participate? If so, how would they do that?
0: We actually prefer to find naive participants who really don't know what we're doing, (laughs) because that data is a little bit more valid. So I always get this question, like, even from people at the company like, hey, can like, I participate in the surveys? And you can participate in some of the surveys, but not all. Um, I would say the ones where we're trying to get people's judgments of meaning and expression, like we, we, we want that distribution to be like a naive distribution over the population. But we have a new survey where we have people interacting with our generative API, so like basically voice in, voice out. And it also sees your facial expression that influences what it says. And then you report like was this a good experience or not which right now we have participants taking that survey but we do want to open that up pretty soon so so it can be something more like chatbot arena where it's like a little bit more democratized and anybody can take it but that's that's coming soon it's not quite out yet
1: i mean it makes sense that you don't want to um have people that are too uh meta in their thinking about what's going on how consistent are people in their judgments, or how do you even think about something like inter-rater reliability? How, you know, if I'm evaluating myself and you're evaluating me, like, how much do we agree? How much do we disagree? It's hard to
0: think about inter-rater reliability in this way, right? But like, let's say the two of us are, are evaluating a picture, and we have a lot of raters evaluating that picture. Um, there, we, we have some degree of inter-rater reliability that we can look at. And then we can see how well our models are capturing the explainable variance in those judgments. So what what the different raters have in common versus like what they don't have in common. And that's the maximum you can get there is 100%. If I was just predicting one person's judgment, the maximum is not very high. First of all, because there's a lot of different things you can say, you can say it's like happy or amused, or you can get even more granular. Like this person's looks like they're experiencing schadenfreude or something. And then you have to think about like, what is the semantic space that underlies that? So that's like what we do with semantic space theory and, and, and what are the dimensions you want to cast that along to assess reliability and all that. And so it gets, it gets really complicated if you're trying to just predict one person's judgments. Um, but inter reliability, I see it as more of like a noise ceiling for how, the, how well the model can do because we're really trying to predict the whole distribution of human judgments and not like try to replicate one person's judgments or say one or or even say like one person's judgments are accurate and the other pers- person's aren't like we're not trying to do
1: that. Yeah, I imagine that would be a huge challenge. The closest thing that I've studied to this is the aesthetic evaluation of images and um there's a data set the name of it's uh, escaping me at the moment, but there's a data set put together a few years ago where you know, pretty heroic effort to go have like a hundred people rate each of the images in the data set. You think, well, geez, why do you need a hundred different ratings of each image? And the answer is because there is a lot of disagreement about just, you know, what this thing should score out of one to ten. You see like a pretty, you know, kind of usually it's like a bell curve for any individual image, but you see a pretty wide, you know, curve for just a single image. And, you know, that obviously, you know, means that the downstream model is going to have some real challenges as well. In terms of the data that you collect, is it like word? I mean, I, I can imagine different things, right? You could, I could imagine like a unhappiness to happiness scale where I would have like a slider and I would like put, you know, the slider at a point for how happy or unhappy I think they are. And you could have that, you know, on a few different dimensions, or you could be like, choose the three words out of this pool of words that are, you know, most appropriate I imagine you've experimented with multiple things. What do you find to be the most effective way to elicit that kind of judgment from people? So we've done
0: a bunch of different kinds of studies of this. So we had like pleasant, unpleasant slider. We've had done things where we have like 23 different sliders, pleasant, unpleasant, calm, aroused. This is familiar or unusual, like novel for the person. Uh, all these different kinds of, these are called appraisal dimensions. And then we do studies where it's just like pick an emotion <laughs> or pick multiple emotions. And it turns out the pick an emotion study is way more informative than these sliders. Like, like you, you capture, first, if you do the pick an emotion study and then you try to predict the sliders, you can predict them like almost 100% of the variance in what sliders people are, or where along each slider somebody is going to say this is. You can predict almost all the explainable variants there. But if you try to go in the other direction, you're only predicting like 20% of, of the variance in the emotion study. So emotions are like these really powerful shorthands that we have to describe emotional behavior. And that's what we end up using for most of our studies because that's like the most powerful thing. And there's just so much information and nuance in them. And you can continue adding more emotions up to 20, 30, sometimes 40 different options And get more and more information out of it so uh, in our surveys now we have more than 50 different options per survey and there's sometimes change sometimes they change depending on the modality because in some like in the voice we conceptualize things slightly differently than in the face versus like when we're reporting on our experiences versus when we're talking to somebody so those words can change a little bit but fundamentally just having enough emotion categories really does capture it and is more consistent across cultures. So things like anger are much more consistent versus unpleasant, pleasant. Uh, surprisingly, people used to think that the most consistent things were valence and arousal. So unpleasant, pleasant versus calm, aroused. It turns out that's not the case. It turns out that anger and fear and love and amusement and awe are like more consistent uh, when you have people from different cultures rate things in terms of these qualities.
1: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors you know obviously you've taken uh, a lot of pains to try to have a diverse data set and that's obviously going to be super important both for your product quality and for the you know way in which this type of technology serves humanity broadly i wonder kind of what a just like maybe maybe just interesting observations or kind of correlations you might flag that you know would be interesting and then also, I wonder how you deal with examples that may break correlations, you know, like I could imagine, you know, okay, well, certain people that look a certain way, they come from a certain culture, you know, have certain tendencies. But what if, you know, for example, my sister is Korean American adopted, you know, when she was three months old and spent her whole life growing up here. And so she's, you know, looks one way, but it, you know, has a cultural background that's a different way. And, you know, I wonder how you think about dealing with those like correlation breakers as well.
0: So we do these studies and we we collect data in a bunch of different countries, and we actually have published a lot of this data. And there's usually about 80% commonality across cultures once you control for interrater disagreement, which is like bigger than intercultural disagreement. Like if you look at the disagreement across countries, that's smaller if you've averaged the ratings than it is between any two raters within a country 80% of the of the variance is usually preserved across countries and that's usually along upwards of 25 to 30 plus dimensions in any given modality and then when you when you make it multimodal it's like the, the dimensionality goes up upwards of 50 right so the interesting findings have been This is what we have in common. There's always a lot in common. There's some dimensions that are not as culturally universal. Like awe is one. So we have this word awe in English that doesn't necessarily always translate to the same thing in different languages. Um, In East Asia, there's a slightly different conception of it. In Africa, there's a slightly different conception. And so when you look at the facial expression that corresponds to awe, which is recognized in every culture, it's labeled slightly differently. And it's really in the U S where it's like predominantly odd, but it actually is less so in other cultures, but these, these cultural differences are sort of the minority of the variants, even though we do see that. And you even see, like we did the study of, um, ancient sculptures in the ancient Americas. And the reason that's interesting is because there was no cultural contact between the ancient Americas and European cultures. So if, people are portrayed in these sculptures as expressing similar facial expressions in similar situations, that's indicative of of like a biological universal, right? Because, because there's not really any reason to think that there'd be a cultural ex- explanation for that. And we find that to be the case for a lot of like pain, for example, there's these sculptures of people being tortured. And if you just isolate the face from those sculptures, people in every culture in the modern era recognize that as pain. And you can look at Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs, and uh, sometimes you see people crying. And it happens more often at funerals. A lot of these like there's these crying ceremonies that are depicted in ancient hieroglyphs that are really similar to these crying ceremonies that are depicted. In the uh, ethnographies that were written by like the early explorers in the ancient Americas, it's like the same ceremony was happening, <laughs> basically in ancient Egypt, and um, more recently in the ancient Americas. Uh, so there's certain expression dimensions that seem to be completely universal. So that's like on on the extreme end of universality.
1: Fascinating. And so it's a good it's a good point, and this kind of continues to come up, right? The 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 sort of short uh version of it is the variation between or let's say amongst individuals within a group is greater than the variation between groups and that holds again here do the correlation breakers cause problems or is there do you need some sort of special casing for that or maybe that's where the the custom models comes in and you have to kind of build in the context
0: that is where the custom models come in and In particular, even though people kind of, the plurality of people in every culture usually use the same word or its direct translation to describe the meaning of an expression, that doesn't mean the expression is used in the same way, surprisingly. Like people are in some cultures much more ready, right? Much more readily show like positive expressions that are high arousal, like smiling with a really big smile than in other cultures. Like in East Asia, that's a lot less common than in the US. In the UK, that's actually a lot less common too. Um, so, So you need to control for those differences when you're looking concretely at things like, I don't know, like customer support. The customer support calls sound totally different in different cultures, surprisingly. And so you need to train a custom model for your customer support calls within each culture where you're applying it At least to the extent of making distinctions between like broadly the US and Canada versus the UK versus India versus East Asia. Like these are all like, and even within East Asia, there's variances. People much more readily express anger in some cultures than others. People much more readily uh, express kind of exaggerated positivity. And it doesn't always mean something sincere. depending on the culture you're looking at. So you need to train the custom models for those reasons to control for those uh, cultural norms.
1: So I want to unpack that in more detail in just a second. But before even getting to that, let's just talk about kind of the base models. And you've got a bunch. um, As I, you know, expressive language, emotional call types, facial action units, you know, speech processes you mentioned earlier, dynamic reactions, and more beyond. One thing that jumped out to me about these is that they all have kind of a different number of, it's not exactly a classifier, right? I imagine you could get multiple, you know, kind of labels out for a single input, but, you know, 53 emotions, 67 descriptors, 37 kinds of facial movement, 28 kinds of vocal expression. I guess just for starters, like, how are you arriving at these numbers of different emotional, and what word do you even use for it? Is it label? Is it Um, dimension. I mean, obviously you use the actual terms, but like, I'm I'm really curious about, you know, is that based on prior work or is that based on some sort of clustering of the data itself? How are you arriving at these numbers?
0: Yeah, that's based on studies that we've published as well as more exploratory studies that we've done internally, not all of which are interesting enough to publish, but (laughs) basically there's boring reasons sometimes. Like for, for the voice, if you're looking at speech prosody, that has a lot of different dimensions to it, but but fewer than vocal bursts, which are like laughs and sighs and screams and interjections like uh and uh-huh, because vocal bursts are less phonetically constrained. So there's certain things that are in the phonetics of vocal bursts that we use to distinguish different kinds of things we're expressing that are not present in speech prosody because that. Phonetic dimension is being used to actually form the words, so you can't you can't use it anymore for for vocal bursts, and for that reason, speech prosody actually has fewer dimensions than vocal bursts. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds kind of boring, but like that that's one of the one of the distinctions. And then in the face, there's there's different dimensions that we express uh, with facial expression versus in the voice, and um, some of that just has to do with probably the way that the voice and face can be used for social communication, even like deep into our evolutionary history. So some expressions are better expressed quietly than others, and some are actually harder to form and represent this kind of sincere expression. A really, really stereotyped example would be like blushing. Like blushing is impossible to fake, right? And it's a signal of embarrassment or shame that is used to express that we're genuinely, like we can't fake it. So it's a genuine commitment that we are actually expressing this. And it's something that you don't want to do out loud. (laughs) And so it's not really something that is replicated in voice. Most voice dimensions are, they're easier to fake. It's easier to voice act than to both do the voice acting and facial expression at the same time. I would say. I mean, you can do the video, you can do like anger, or like, like so shock or surprise, and it, it it doesn't it doesn't usually look as authentic. It's much easier to like sound convincing when you're voice acting, and that's because probably in our evolutionary history that like you can just hear somebody's voice even if that person doesn't know that you're overhearing mm-hmm. them, and so there's certain private information that we wouldn't want to express as readily in the voice, and that there's certain things that we want to be able to to do intentionally. Right with our voice that we, we don't necessarily want
1: to lose control over. So all of that makes sense to me in terms of like, you know, the, the different signals that are coming through the different modalities, but I'm still a little bit stuck on like why 53 and not 54 or 52 emotions out of expressive language? How are you drawing that line and saying like, you know, cause you, I imagine like you mentioned like it earlier, like I'm guessing that's not one of them. But maybe it is, but you know, like at some point you have to draw. There's like another, there's definitely another word, right, that you could add. But at some point you're you're saying, okay, like this is the set. And I I'm, I'm really curious as to how that cutoff is being determined. You
0: kind of want to over-represent, you want to over-sample the number of actually distinct dimensions that people express. And the counts that we show on the website are usually the number of distinct dimensions that we actually express or that we've been found like we've been able to identify people being able to distinguish perceptually with scientifically rigorous studies versus like the number of labels we use. And uh, you want to uh, basically pick enough labels that you can capture all those dimensions. And we just figure out with some pilot studies or with actual like longer term studies, what words we actually need to include to get there. And (laughs) Yeah, this is probably a boring answer, but it, it really is just based on like looking at a curve and seeing where where there's drop-off in our ability to explain variance, basically.
1: So does that cash out too, in terms of like people actually making these judgments that you would like give someone an, an image and you're just getting sort of random-ish labels from different people, like there's just not enough agreement on, <laughs> yeah, please, I, I'm still a little struggling. Shopify <laughs> is a great example
0: because if you get ratings of both contempt and amusement, then that's basically Schadenfreude. So you don't need actually to have the Schadenfreude label. So there's actually different rotations of this space. You could There's like a bunch of different taxonomies you could use that are all equivalently explanatory. Like you could use a completely different set of words and still explain the same underlying dimensions. That's one of like the big revelations from my research which is that it's actually this continuous space where you have like Schadenfreude as amusement and contempt, or like shock as surprise and fear, or like there's a bunch of examples. Uh, so we 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 just basically try to find the words that are the most distinct that people can reliably use, and not we 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 try to shy away from words that like people don't know what they mean like Schadenfreude because you you can get that distribution of the population that we'll use that label, but it's pretty sparse. So if you can get the same information out of contempt and amusement labels, that's actually a lot better. So it's the fact that these words are just, they're just concepts that are used to parcelate what is essentially a continuous space. And you want to have enough concepts that people are able to reliably identify where something lies along those dimensions. And not too many that, that actually you start to lose the ability to or you don't lose anything with with having too many dimensions, but you just need more data to compensate for the fact that you have basically two synonyms of the same thing, or a word that means a combination of two other words, and you need to basically derive that from the data itself, and your model has to figure that out. So you you, you kind of want to avoid some of that complexity so that you can be more data efficient, basically. So that's what we do. I mean, we just like we run all of these like huge studies to figure this out. We've had, you know, we have like millions of samples where people are rating, imitating, uh, acting, um, reacting to, like we have all these videos that people react to. And so we're just running these big studies in different cultures to figure this out basically. And that's just how we train our models. Then when you actually like peel off the output of the models, it, you, you realize that you actually get even more variants that you can explain from the underlying embedding dimensions. So if you didn't have Schadenfreude, and Schadenfreude turned out to be important to include, you might actually find that you you can already explain it with, with the embeddings that we derive from models that we train, essentially. And the embeddings themselves, because the model's been trained to ignore identity, the embeddings of the, like, the higher layers of the models are actually pretty identity independent as well, and we can test that out. Um, So they're not like influenced by gender and race, but actually represent these movements that are more nuanced. And that's sort of the the kind of underlying core of, of everything we do. Once you get these really nuanced dimensions in a way that's identity independent, then we can use that for the custom model API, which allows people to predict anything from it or model training on the generative side. We actually look at people's reactions to words, and we're training generative models to produce words that evoke the right set of reactions. And all of the nuance that we get from our expression measurement models turns out to make a big difference when it comes to, to those use cases.
1: So one more question on just the base models, and then let's go to the custom models. The the base models, can you describe just the inputs and the outputs? Like I know that it's, you know for example, video with audio, but I'm curious about how that gets like sliced down or you know, pre-processed before it gets fed in, like how much time dimension and how do you think about like chunking that? I mean, presumably, you know, if you were to just do like a totally naive chopping of the video, you could have a lot of artifacts as a result of you know where the breaks fall. So I imagine there's gotta be some like overlapping, but I'm, I'm very curious about that. And then also on the output, Is it just like a number for every dimension that kind of says like you're very high on happiness and you're low on shock and you know, that for kind of all the way down the line or what exactly is the sort of raw output of the base model? So inputs and outputs.
0: So the base models are really, really high density. So for the facial expression model, we can do frame by frame. And we also have a dynamic model that takes into account a sliding number of frames before that. And that's like a parameter you can adjust to inform its prediction of what someone's gonna perceive at a given frame. So like, for example, people form these like weird facial expressions sometimes at a high density, when you look, when you really like pause things frame by frame, you'll often see these kind of crazy facial expressions show up especially if the person's really expressive. So the frame by frame like estimate can be really spiky. And then we have a dynamic model we apply on top of that. But actually that frame by frame estimate is what we end up using to help to, to form these custom models. So we take usually three frames per second is like the right cadence, or you can you can go beyond that, but you put those diminishing returns. And then we actually have the model figure out what is the we don't like explicitly chunk it, we we put put it alongside words into a joint multimodal model. And then the model figures out. How to look at that dynamic information intermingled with words and that forms our prediction for custom model for example like it depends on what your custom model is doing like if you have a small amount of data and they're long videos we'll just average across the video because that's like, like that's the best we can do the model is not going to be able to do that much better using dynamic information but if your custom model is something like um, end of turn prediction where it's like every single turn somebody's speaking and you want to know when they're done speaking, which we can do internally and we use that in a lot of ways. But but if that's like what you're predicting, then you want really dense information. You want to actually know the prosody of the last word somebody used and where that left off and also their facial expression.
1: So tell me more about the custom models uh, finally getting there with all the uh, the foundation laid. It's a mix now, right, of these inputs and your data. So maybe a good way to to approach this would be to just share some examples of like what different kinds of data people have brought to the platform and and mixed in with your emotional foundation?
0: Yeah, so we we have a bunch of sample models. So driver drowsiness you mentioned earlier, um, customer uh, outcomes from customer support calls, like is somebody satisfied or not? Did this call go well or not? We have models of whether somebody like expressed having felt depressed while they were speaking, but we don't know this from the video itself. And we can predict it from somebody's expressions and language from the video much better than if you just use all of these are like models where we do much better using expression than just language alone. And the reason that our custom model API is so important is because probably like when I was giving that last explanation, like how we chunk together different frames of expression with different, with the audio, with the language, like that's really depending on the problem. And we wanted to do all of that work so that people wouldn't have to figure that out themselves. And so that's what we built the custom model API to do. So all you need to do is upload your labels and your data and we do the rest and we figure out what kind of model to train. And we cross validate it and give you the accuracy and we give you an endpoint to deploy the model. So whether it's like, if it's a customer service call we can give you an endpoint that says how well this model this call is going at any given time without having any labels of that all, the labels you've given us are overall how well did this call go right like at the end of the call how well did it go but now you can apply that at a more granular level and you can also apply that to millions of calls that are unlabeled and start to train a model that actually acts like a good customer service agent with all of that implicit feedback that you would not otherwise be able to access because it's like hinted in people's expressions on these calls. So that's where the custom model API comes in. I mentioned a few different custom models that we've made available publicly. There's a bunch that are not, I mean, like by default, your model is not public. You train it and it's just yours to use, but there's models that are clinical collaborators have trained that are really, really cool. Like you can take a, a video of somebody actually in a clinical trial where they're talking about their depression and track in a really nuanced and robust way, like all these different depression symptoms that you actually have an easier time tracking from these like short kind of video diaries versus actual doctor's appointments. (laughs) And you can do it at a much higher um, level of granularity. Like you can have people do this every day. We have other kinds of customer support models trained on, on many more calls and, um, yeah, I mean, just the list goes on and on this coaching use cases, education, like, is somebody distracted, um, and that's not used to like spy on them, but to help somebody realize if they were distracted while something was being said in a lecture, you can like remind them later on that they were distracted and ask if they want to repeat that part of the lecture, stuff like that, there's just a bunch of use cases, which is why we've made it a developer API that anybody can use and not like a SaaS product for a specific use case.
1: So if I'm, let's say I'm, you know, any of a bazillion companies that are sitting on a lot of recorded customer service calls and then like corresponding downstream data. And I guess that could be a simple, you know, how well did this call go for you kind of survey result or potentially, you know, did the customer churn after this call or, you know, whatever, right? There could be a lot of different downstream indicators, but I imagine what most people have is like the raw call. And then like a relatively, relatively few data points downstream that they really care about predicting and optimizing for. We just bring you that data and like the team goes to work on it. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's, it's like a fully automated thing at this point. You're still putting in some elbow grease to kind of figure out like, what is the nature of that data set and how best to use it?
0: No, it's pretty much fully automated. So all of that's happening in an automated way. You just like upload your labels that you have along with your calls. And then we will train the model that predicts those labels. It will do the work of like, a, of like months of data science, basically, if you were to train that model yourself and also utilize our model embeddings, which you would not otherwise be able to access to give you much higher accuracies in predicting your outcome. Or you, it could be an outcome that your label represents. It could be the state of a person in the call. Um, And so we do all of that for you and we even give you the endpoint to deploy it. Like we give you the model ID, which you can then put into our API and get back your prediction right away. Oftentimes people have a lot of data and they wanna use the labels that they have. But surprisingly often, even in something like customer support, like people have data, but it's really noisy. Like Like these ratings of customer satisfaction are really noisy, for example, because you don't know if a customer was dissatisfied due to anything that you can control or whether they're just like a jerk, right? <laughs> like, and, and so it's better to actually have a manager or even better like a, somebody at a higher level go in and look at the call and listen to it and, and say whether they thought the call went well or not. And we can take that really gold standard prediction, we can predict that with like 100 calls or 200 calls, and then you can apply that to all of your other calls. And, and that's something you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, And you can compare that gold standard to potentially other labels that you have, and you can train a model with those other labels and actually see what those different competing models are doing and how to use them. So it's really about being able to train a model on gold standard data that's often limited and still get really, really good accuracy.
1: Again, I'm kind of wondering about how much trailing time is being considered as you go through this. Like if I have a 10 minute customer service call, I might be, it might be going real bad for the first two minutes. And then, you know, the person, you know, totally redeems themselves or whatever, right? There could be a lot of kind of ups and downs. So how much, how much sort of trailing time are you considering? And like, do you in fact see a lot of like roller coaster dynamics as people go through these interactions?
0: Yeah, it really depends on the outcome. I mean, surprisingly, the average does pretty well. (laughs) Like, Like if you train these dynamic models, we have these dynamic models that we've trained by putting expression measures alongside language tokens into a language model and training it for, you know, billions more tokens tens of billions more tokens, so that it really deeply understands both how expressions influence language in an interaction and how language influences future expressions. That's useful for a lot of things, and, and I can talk about that. But in terms of the custom model, like if we take that embedding and use it to predict custom outcomes, that's often a lot better, sometimes a lot better, but often it's just like slightly better than just taking the average, since the average is like equally good. And then when you're looking at a customer service call, the ups and downs can really just be modeled as a sliding window. <laughs> it's simpler than you might think. Like, it, it's, there's actually tricks that you can use that get you pretty close to the optimal or seemingly optimal model that you'd be able to train with a lot more data. Um, and we really invest in being able to use those tricks because oftentimes people don't have that much data to train on. right? We do all the pre-training that makes it easy to. To deploy those tricks because basically we've extracted a multimodal expression language embedding that's pre-trained on, on millions of hours of data. But when you actually deploy that, that's like an embedding that you can cast your data into, and then you can do classification and regression within that extremely compressed embedding space really. <laughs> and, and it's more effective that way.
1: A couple of big takeaways there for me. One is like, one approach is that you are essentially text tokenizing and kind of interweaving the emotional expression into the dialogue itself. And then I guess you probably have to diarize it as well. If you're talking about like dialogues, right. Who's, who's talking at any given time speaker tokens. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got kind of a, um, you know, ultimately still all text representation of all this stuff. So these kind of, you know, these kind of base, I don't know if base model isn't quite the right term anymore because you, it, the classifier models that you've, uh, that we've covered earlier. But yeah. Me- measurement models. Okay. So those are used to then create this like annotation of text and then you have tons of that. And so you can essentially do like continued pre-training. Yes. Whatever. Is it like a llama two, I guess would be the, uh, the default assumption these days for what you're extending.
0: Mistral Lama two, we do small, it depends, we actually have a bunch of models that we train because there's smaller models we use for model orchestration, there's larger models we use for language generation, there's smaller models we use for like endpointing and all of that. So we train a lot of these, but yes, that's what we do. We're, we're, we're training it on video of people interacting. And so it's from that video that we can extract all the expression tokens. And those tokens are not necessarily in the, like there's different versions of this but the best version is actually creating new tokens that don't exist in the vocabulary of the model and and training on those so what we're doing is actually it's not a multimodal model like GPT-4V which is trained on just images interleaved with text on the internet it's 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 a different kind of human interaction model but we're still building it on the best unsupervised Utter aggressive language models and so taking advantage of, of all of the scaling people have done in that domain
1: So on the business side we've covered you know a decent number of use cases just kind of as we've gone through this um, I looked at the pricing page I always zoom to the pricing page of everything that I check out and I wasn't I guess is this for a custom model or you can kind of clarify but I, I see 2.76 cents per minute to process audio and video, which with a little arithmetic, I compute at $1.66 per hour to process audio and video. I always just like to anchor that kind of stuff and think, you know, well, how much does that cost compared to a human? Um, Obviously, that would be a lot cheaper than having somebody go through and, you know, do detailed annotation. And from like an ROI perspective, you know, if you've got somebody making $20 an hour in a call center, you know, how much more efficient, can we make them, you know, it's, it's pretty easy for this ROI to start to look like a, you know, pretty sure bet. Is, is that indeed the pricing for the custom model? Do I have that right?
0: Yeah. So actually the custom model API is free. It's trained on top of the underlying expression measurement models. And so you're just charged exactly the same way that the expression measurement models are charged, which is by the hour, based on whether it's video or audio or text and if you have a custom model it's still the same price by by the hour yeah and you get all those custom model predictions that you've trained
1: gotcha okay cool so you've done this giant extended pre-training with all these kind of annotated interactions then i bring my own data to it i only need potentially just a couple hundred examples but that's enough to really do like the last phase of fine tuning to dial it in on my particular labels of interest, and then all that's available at the same price as the base model, and that works out to be for audio and video a dollar 66 an hour or just under three cents a minute. How do you think? I mean, you mentioned a second ago GPT 4V and kind of a, a multimodal. Obviously, this is the you know the big kind of new unlock for like general purpose models right now, and In preparation, I did just a little bit of like GPT-4V, you know, throwing a couple images in there to see how well it can do with this stuff. It was hard for me to assess, you know, exactly how well it was doing, but it was like clear that it was doing at least somewhat well. You know, it, it was not like totally failing, I can say that. So I wonder how you think about the future of this space and kind of the role of specialist systems, like the ones that obviously you've been building versus, you know, the other argument would be like, the bitter lesson, you know, wins again, perhaps, and you know the mega models are just, you know, are the best at everything. How do you see that playing out over the next, you know, as far as far as your crystal ball will allow you to predict?
0: Yeah, I mean, we build on top of the the mega models. Like every time a mega model comes out, we're like really excited because we've our whole infrastructure just allows us to to layer that into the cake really easily, and we do the last. It's not like the last mile, but like the last million miles of like of like training on top or whatever we need to do to utilize that. Just to make it concrete, like GPT four V, like the, it captures some aspects of expression, but if you actually test it, it's not always right, and it's really biased by gender and stuff. Um, and they've maybe made changes to try to correct for that, but then you end up with lower fidelity predictions. And that's just because it's just trained on images that happen to be interleaved with text on the internet. And the internet comments on different kinds of people in different ways, and and sometimes pernicious ways, right? It's not trained on people in dialogue, like the actual social interactions. And that's what we do. There's only so much dialogue that exists, kind of. And we also have more dialogue that comes in from users. And so our specialty is training on all of that. And in order to do that, well, you take these foundation models that already understand the language, you take our measurement models, which are also trained on like audio foundation models and vision foundation models, which we need our controlled data to be able to extract from those, the dimensions of expression. And then we interleave those dimensions of expression with language and that is trained on all the dialogue that we can get. So it's really a different, it's a different part of the space. It's still taking advantage of unsupervised training. So, you know, we're still, we've learned from the bitter lesson. We're not sort of hand tuning any features. We're only doing things that scale, right. And they scale in different ways. There's the, the, the scaling of expression language models that predict expression from language and vice versa. And then there's the scaling of the reinforcement learning part, which that's thought of as like this kind of hand engineered thing that doesn't scale, but we make it scale because we can we can use ex- uh, people's reactions in video as reinforcement for the language model. It's producing the language that people are reacting to we do that over minutes, hours. And, and, and if, if we have users that are longitudinally using the product, we can do it over days. Right. And we can say. Produce language that makes people happier, produce the answers that make people more satisfied versus frustrated, produce like the. The advice that makes people have better lives, <laughs> you know, we can do that reinforcement learning at scale with implicit feedback, and so we're actually sort of correcting the way that that's done from the perspective of, I think people will learn the bitter, bitter lesson of RLHF is that it, it doesn't scale.
1: Yeah, it's a huge challenge, and it, it is. I have experienced a little bit of the. You know the weirdness of gpt4v on images where you know just putting in like a couple photos of myself and my kid and saying like which one should i send to my wife and i'll do you know one where it's like we look good and then there's another one where we don't look so good and you know it's one of these like in between moments with a weird expression or whatever and it really you really have to coax it to to get it to answer that question it really doesn't want to tell you you don't look good in one of your pictures so yeah there is there's also that aspect of the RLHF that's like you know it's kind of dialed in for you know obviously a, a more controlled and hopefully safer experience but that is not always consistent with giving you know straight talk uh you know accurate assessments of things and you can see that you know just in in ChatGPT So in zooming out here you mentioned like people using a product longitudinally and you know expanding the time horizon and i think you know in the, in the time we have left I, I would love to hear how you think about this as we zoom out in terms of you know okay it's one thing to say we can predict how well this call is going and we can like optimize our business processes around that that makes total sense i'm sure businesses is, is booming as people are like oh my god you know this is something i can do like i i'll How do I, you know, how much does it cost and and how do I get started, right? But then I start to think, okay, now if we start to really train models on our emotional response and we're, you know, I think we should definitely continue to expect more powerful mega models. Uh, You know, Gemini has been um, released, not released, but announced today. And, you know, it's um, surpassing GPT-4 in, in, you know, narrowly in, in many ways. I don't think we're at the end of history there. And these things are just going to become such a much, much bigger part of our lives. And I just wonder like, where is this all headed? (laughs) You know, how are we going to go from this sort of frame by frame, you know, you look unhappy and we want to change our business process to avoid that to a world where we have like long relationships with AI systems and, you know, who's optimizing who at some point like starts to become a real question, I think. So I know you've put a lot of thought into that. I'd love to hear how you are thinking about it, because it's certainly an intimidating challenge from my perspective.
0: I mean, that's sort of the motivation for all of what we do, is that at the end of the day, we want to optimize for people to have more positive emotions in their daily lives, right? And that is how AI should be optimized. AI should be optimized for our interests. Our interests are to uh, flourish as human beings. It should be optimized for human flourishing. So how do you do that? Basically the challenge is, I mean, there's the, I'll talk about like first unintentional misalignment, right? Uh, And then we'll talk about intentional misalignment. But from the perspective of unintentional misalignment where you're asking a model to do something and then it does it, it actually satisfies your goal, but it does in a way you don't want. The reason that you don't want to have done what it did is because it did it in a way that was actually harmful to you, right? Uh, That it it didn't take into account a background understanding of what humans actually seek out, what makes them happy that should like override other contrary objectives. Um, And that's what humans do naturally. When we ask another human for something, they consider all of this pre-existing knowledge that they have about what makes humans happy and that influences how they carry out uh, your request. But if the AI doesn't have that background knowledge, it could do something that's regrettable. So our goal is to be able to have the AI first understand how well how its decision will affect your well-being next week, next month, next year. And then look at your goal. Your goal might be to affect something next week, fill my bank account, like make sure my bank account is as full as possible next week. And it should be able to weigh the different sub instrumental goals that it that it develops en route to that end goal based on how they affect your well-being and the well-being of other humans and creatures on Earth, right? And, and choose a means to carry out the goal that is not contrary to people's well-being, right? That's really the goal. So in order to do that, it needs to be able to predict well-being as well as it can predict how full your bank account will be as a function of whatever decisions it can make. Um, And then it needs to weigh well-being above any other objective. It needs to actually override the objective that you give it. Um, And that also then carries over to when something is intentionally bad. Like it should actually still use people's well-being to inhibit your ability to ask it to do something intentionally bad. Um, And it should be able to say, actually, I can't do that because it would hurt these people and actually be able to explain why um, it doesn't want to do that. That's um, I think when you put those two together, that is basically the solution to the alignment problem. And it just has to do with optimizing longitudinally for
1: well-being. That is ultimately the solution. I've been struck over the last year and change that it seems like the power of the mega models is growing at a faster rate than our ability to control their behavior or our insights into how to even specify goals and maybe I would extend that to like also to the growth of the, you know, long time horizon data sets that we would need to inform these sort of long time horizon predictions. Do you think we are in a place right now where we kind of need more time to figure this stuff out? Um, how do you feel about the the relative pace of progress and the rel- versus, you know, the pace of kind of, you might call this like the wisdom of AI systems.
0: So it's worries. I, I mean, I, I'm a very much a person who's worried about the capabilities of these systems growing at a rate that exceeds our ability to align them with human interests. <laughs> I'm very worried about that. Um, I actually think for, for various reasons, um, the, the the way that things have progressed recently is, is, is generally Good. I actually think that the AI race has resulted in people publishing less of the sort of core ideas that enable you to expand the capabilities of these models. And that's actually slowed things down because now OpenAI doesn't see what Google's coming up with, like its best ideas to improve the model. And Google doesn't see what OpenAI is coming up with. And so actually, things have slowed down, which is why the Gemini is not that much better than GPT 4. GPT 4 has been the best model for over a year, right? So that's, that's encouraging in some ways. Now, um, in terms of training these models and actually solving the alignment problem, which I think is extremely urgent, you mentioned that you need longitudinal data, and I totally agree with that. That actually does, in practice, inhibit a lot of our ability to test whether these models are actually good when you like release them into the into the environment, because you need to know over the course of years like is this going to improve somebody's well being? That's really like the bottom line, the gold standard. However, you can sort of get around that by taking all the longitudinal data that already exists and reframing the problem as one of as understanding people's emotional affordances. So when I come to you with a request, it can be reconceived as like an emotional affordance for you to improve my well-being by carrying out the request. And you can be like, oh, I I will do that because it improves your well-being. So if you're optimized for my well-being, you'll carry out the request insofar as the request is consistent with my well-being. All of that can be learned, things about things, people's emotional affordances, given their context, can be learned from existing data that has human interactions. And so the models should try to learn as much of that as possible before even having to learn on the job. Now, Hume has designed ways for it to learn on the job. So Hume is designing ways for it to be first, uh, to the degree possible, optimized to understand emotional affordances in the existing data that we have that's human interactions. And then be able to continue learning on the job and testing out the theories that it's learned about how it can basically expand upon affordances for positive emotion in your environment and act upon those affordances for positive emotions and avoid the things that will cause negative emotions. It can actually test that in practice when it's deployed and should learn in practice, but already with a pre existing knowledge that gets it to well beyond human level. It should be like way better than, the, uh, than any human on earth at understanding emotional affordances just from the start because it's already learned from way more data than any human on Earth has seen that informs our understanding of emotional affordances in everyday interactions. So I think there's a there's a starting point you can get to. Um, that's where we're trying to go. And then once we release these AI systems into the environment, they have to be able to continuously learn. That's going to be a, you know, a challenge. But hopefully the starting point for it, understanding emotional affordances, is, as, is higher than any other capability. The, the, the ideal is that it is better at predicting how an action affects human well-being than how than the degree to which it, it will result in your bank account having a higher number right? like things like that. And that, there's no reason why that couldn't be the case because predicting well-being is a matter of predicting people's emotional expressions, their reactions, their states over longer long time scales and that data exists just as much as like the, the bank account data exists. So I think there's a there's a path forward. I'm very much worried about it, but I'm also optimistic that we can solve the problem.
1: Well, that's a great uh, note to end on. I, I love the optimism and I love the fact that you are attacking that problem in such a head-on and also kind of such a unique way. I mean, I really haven't seen uh, much else that's like this and I, I really appreciate the uh, the depth and the rigor of the thought that you and the team are putting into it. So. With that, I will say, Alan Cowan of Hume AI, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. All right, thanks for having me. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.